Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into the latest episode, The Real History of the Kingsman. From 1914 to 1918, one of the deadliest conflicts in history ravaged the world and saw an estimated 9 million people lose their lives as brutal battles played out in Europe, the Middle East, Africa and parts of Asia. It came to be known as the Great War and was said to be the war to end all wars, until it wasn't. In this episode, we're looking at the most recent cinematic depiction of this time, The Kingsman, from Franz Ferdinand's assassination and the death of Rasputin to trench warfare and colonialism. The film offers a complex mixture of themes to explore. To do so, I'm joined by historian of the 19th and early 20th century and author of Death in 10 Minutes and Sex Lessons from History, Dr. Fern Riddell. This episode contains spoilers. If you want to watch the film before listening, it's now streaming on Disney Plus in the UK. Fern, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, first of all, how are you? How, how are things in Victorian and early 20th century history? Oh, it, mad. I think it's been, a, it's been an interesting two years. And I, it, I think for me, what's fascinating is we've been trying to do this for a week or so, ever since Kingsman came out, the Kingsman came out, and we both got really excited by it. And a week ago, if we'd had this discussion, we would not be having the discussion we're having now because of what's happened in Ukraine, which has completely shifted so much of what I want to talk to you about, about Victorian masculinity and manhood and all of that. So I think the the fact that we're living in a world where we're all still sort of stuck at home and nothing feels quite real, and yet reality is carrying on outside without us in graphic fashion it's kind of amazing so we're here to talk about the king's man which is on disney plus at the moment if everybody wants to watch it i enjoyed it but it has had really mixed reviews hasn't it they have and i think that's actually really unfair so i i love i've always loved matthew vaughan i think he does what he does really really well and when kingsman the first one came out It was brilliant. It was really funny and sort of did action in a different way, in a way that felt quite fresh and quite exciting. And then the second one for me was an absolute bomb. It felt like they'd kind of lost their way because the first one had been so good. This, as a complete redo of the whole franchise, really just taking it as something, making it something completely new. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I know I said this to you before, but I really do think it's one of the best World War I films I have ever seen, ever, with how it deals with things, with what it talks about. And it's just brilliant. So that, I mean, that's kind of, we're going to do a lot of spoilers in this, but that's my main spoiler is you've heard, if you've heard a bad review about this, I think it's a film people have slept on because they didn't expect him to do the history well. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Although one of the reviews that I did read spoke about how they had a sense that the film wasn't quite sure what it was supposed to be. It was a bit jarring in some places um, because it was slapstick, but then it went, in, went into like really serious history. And I, I get that. I, I understand that. But for me, that wasn't a negative. That was actually a positive. Another thing to say about this film is that 
obviously it comes with a ton of caveats. It's a film that does touch on colonial history, but it has problems in and of itself as well. There's only one female character that, um, you know, she has a smallish role. It's a well-rounded role, I think, but she could have been more. And there's only one person of colour in the film as well. So there are caveats to bear in mind, but I'd still like to discuss it. So can you tell me about World War One in The King's Man? Well, I think you I think you kind of you absolutely hit the nail on the head there because it has it is it's a film within a film. So you kind of had this amazing action, slapstick, funny, brilliantly acted, very tongue-in-cheek, Matthew Vaughan-esque film that bookends. But right in the center, just after the kind of the, the heart of the center of the film, you have this total twist to one of the most passionate, powerful heartbreaking depictions of the reality of World War One that I have ever seen. And I think I, I was ended up in tears, which I didn't expect at all. And I think one of the reasons it hit so hard was because it had set itself up against that. So you weren't expecting it when these these huge kind of action set pieces and and real tragedy and pain that comes with being in the trenches and the sacrifices men made at that time, it just hits you so much harder it's like you know it's very reminiscent to me of oh what a lovely war it's that kind of it's that double hit of you know we're going to laugh about this and we're going to take the mickey out of it and then we're going to really hit you with the reality and it's going to be so much more powerful because of that Mm, I get that I get that and oftentimes we do use comedy to tackle dark and awful things. So this film starts out with a fan, with kind of its opening scenes as a depiction of the Boer War, which I think is a piece of his, our history we really haven't dealt with. And we, we don't really teach, we don't really talk about, people say Boer War, Victor, you know, end of Victorian era, start of the world, uh, start of the Edwardian period. And other people might kind of nod. I had someone tell me the other day that they had no idea that it was to do with white people because they thought it just happened in Africa. Which was really sort of, you know, it's the one of those moments where you sit there going, oh, as a historian, <laughs> I really need to realise that that's not something that's kind of well known and shared. So it starts with the concentration camps of the Boer War, which again is something we've only started to tackle and only started to talk about. And then it leads into kind of the setup of that as being a very important, what happens in there as a very important kind of meaningful driver for Rafe Fine's character and the son's character as kind of the thing that sets them up for the path that they're going to go through. So we're already, the film opens with dealing with a history that we already don't really confront. And they outright say it's a concentration camp, which really struck me because I don't think I've ever seen that before. This is something that as English, as, as the British, we don't acknowledge. We don't acknowledge that the British had concentration camps in Africa. We don't acknowledge that they were segregated. So we put white Boers in one and we put black Africans in another. We don't talk about the fact that we, if we, the only times when we do acknowledge the Boer War, we only acknowledge the pain that was visited on the white Boers. We don't talk about that the pain that was visited on black Africans was so much more extreme. So for me... Just those opening beats confronted so much of our national history that we have not yet fully confronted in a film, in a popular film that loads of people are going to see, was already exciting immediately. And, and I, think, I think that was 
well done, it could always have gone farther, it could always have pushed more. But setting up Kitchener as being the person who's operating those camps, who is then supposed to be this great hero, I think was was really important for, you know, our our popular history and our public history challenging nostalgia. So then we flash forward and Rafe finds... He's the Duke of Oxford, which I love. The Duke of Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) And okay, so he's decided that he wants to be a pacifist. And we're obviously in the future of his story. His son's grown up. And you can see that he's reflecting on his own past, the Duke of Oxford is, where he was involved in in a war of some sort and had committed horrific crimes. And we get the impression that that's where his pacifism is rooted from. Um, Now, going on in the background of all of this are events outside of their immediate sphere where you have a kind of group of, I don't know what to call them, but a group of people (laughs) um, and they're helmed by this Scottish... (laughs) When did you realise who who the Scottish person was without giving anything away? Well, it was was when... uh, It's Okay, it's hard hard to... So when something happens to his character, I thought... They can't have. He's too brilliant. And then, and I spent the rest of it going, it's got to be. Is it? It can't be. And then when there was the reveal, I was like, of course, of course. Now that's not going to make sense to anyone unless they actually sit down and watch the film, but it, it will make sense when it happens. But you said, you said a really, a really good point there about Ray Fiennes and seeing this depiction of his Victorian life, what he did as a Victorian soldier in the empire. And for me, I, I felt it was, he was probably set um, somewhere in India or possibly in Afghanistan, just kind of in in visiting terrible pain and and colonialization on on people. And Rafe finds his um, kind of voiceover of that is him struggling with having been a weapon for the empire and killing people who were just defending their homes. Now, I cannot think of another World War One film drama, comedy, TV series, whatever, that has dealt with Victorian masculinity and the Victorian heritage of empire for people, for men who then went forward and were pacifists in the First World War. And that was, I mean, it's very, it's not lightly done, you know, it's quite kind of, it's this is the point we're making and then we're going to move on very quickly. But it was so important to see and I, I, it was another one of those moments where, as a, you know, as a historian of the period, I just kind of sat there going, "Oh my god, I, I can't believe they've made that connection and they've done that." And that's brilliant because you never see it. What do we have in the archive? Like, what, what evidence do we have of this? I suppose guilt is the word from that time period. We know we certainly had a very strong kind of pacifist resistance and reaction to World War One. People who didn't want to fight, um, authors, uh, intellectuals who made the case very strongly for why war was wrong and bad and not on a kind of a belief that they wanted the other side to win, just in simply on the idea that war was um, was terrible and awful. And for a lot of those people, it was the reality of seeing what had affected them so much was growing up with victims of the Boer War was growing up with this sense of what the empire had had kind of the destruction it had wrought on other people and seeing wounded soldiers and seeing people 
who were damaged. Because this, of course, is the time when we don't have a welfare state, we don't have social care. So if you were wounded in battle, you often ended up begging with your missing limbs on the streets of any city or town in the UK. So there was a real belief at the start when, when war broke out amongst people who had seen serious conflict before that this was something that should be avoided at all costs and whether that meant refusing to fight and refusing to be used as a weapon yourself for other men's political aims. It, so it, we, we do have a lot of kind of memoirs and letters and discussions about it but the way that the way that the film does it and the way that Matthew Vaughan and his screenwriter chose to do it was to really kind of make that direct connection between the guilt that soldiers feel can feel and the pain that some soldiers can feel with with the actions that they they are asked to commit and then choose to commit in the name of something larger than themselves like the queen or your country and then there's that really powerful conflict that we see that comes from an older generation that's obviously seen war has had horrific experiences and a younger generation that think that these experiences are perhaps overblown and not serious the same won't happen to them and I always try to bring in my favorite period drama which is Endeavour and one of the reasons I really like Endeavour is because they do just this they have this conflict between the men that have fought in the Second World War and then the younger generation that don't have an arena to quote-unquote prove themselves. So they have to find other ways to do it. And I do often think that this is where and why we get countercultural movements and rebellious movements like the ones that we saw in the 1960s and 70s. So let, let's go back to the fictional world that we see presented in the film, particularly this kind of group of antagonists that are assembled by a Scottish villain. I really want to say who this person is, um, but I won't, I won't. Um, but they're assembled by him and they are, they are real people that existed in the early 20th century, but they weren't working together. But it's great because you get to dip into lots of different histories as a consequence. And I think the first one that we meet or the first story we really do follow is the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, which I did find myself Wikipediaing a few things because I didn't realise the two attempts happened in quite the way that they did. But perhaps you can tell us about that. Well, I think this is one of the things that I really love about what Matthew Vaughan does is I'm, I'm I, you know, I think a lot of people in our in our world kind of fall very heavily into the, the camp that alt history is a bad thing and it's a distraction because we need to concentrate on the real history. I, I love alt history. I love the the what if, question, you know, what if, you know, Hitler had won the war? What if those kind of explorations, especially in drama of what if this these moments in our history happened in a different way, I think can be really interesting. And I love the fact that what Matthew Vaughan has done is go, okay, well, here's the history of World War One. Here's, you know, the main beats of how England became involved in the war and why. So you've got the assassin, you've got Kitchener being blown up on his boat. You've got um, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. You've got Rasputin. You've got, well, what if all of those people, all of those, the, those dark shadowy figures who are responsible for nasty things, what if they were all in a super group of villains together and there was this whole other conspiracy behind them? Because I think when you sit down and you look at history, 
it can be really fun to kind of go, okay, well, what if the mo- the motivation was a dark, shadowy world, see, you know, evil power that wanted to conquer the world? Suddenly, it can make sense, and you you can understand how those beats kind of fall in place. So. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand is one of those ones that, again, I I haven't seen depicted properly before. So yes, the assassin is in the film is responsible for both of them, but the fact that there was the attack, which we often see, kind of you know, you see the footage of the car, um, very much like uh, like JFK, but that kind of the the um, the Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke and Duchess, kind of processing in the car, and that there was a shot and and all of this you don't then see the fact that they did reverse down a side street and that was when they got shot. You know, everyone associates the, the, the their assassination happening in front of these huge crowds, not basically by accident because the first attempt had failed. And I, I, I thought that, again, was brilliant because it's one of those moments in history that's so ridiculous you can't believe it could be real. And yet it, it, it was. I, th- I think an awful lot of people who will see this film on streaming will sit there on their phones, Wikipediaing the whole thing because it does. It's got that really light touch with history, where it kind of presents the things that are real as the things that are the most bizarre, and that's that's what people get excited by. So then we go from the assassination to Rasputin, and he's basically portrayed in the most over the top way. <laughs> So yeah, he's kind of like feeding the royal family opium or something like that. Uh, yeah, talk to me about him. Talk to me about the fight dancing, the opium and his death as well. Well, firstly, can we have a moment of silence for Risa Fan doing the sexiest Russian accent I think that has ever been committed to screen? Because yeah, oh my God, it was brilliant. And he is, he looks. <laughs> I messaged, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I messaged you saying, is it is it wrong that I still find Lisa Vinn's attractive as Rasputin? <laughs> no. What I love about, what I love about him as an actor is in anyone else's hands, that character would have been just a massive caricature. And the elements that he's, you know, his, his disturbing nature, his kind of, his intense voyeurism, his sadism in anyone else's hands in this film would have made him a pantomime villain. And what Rhys does is actually play him very controlled. So it's very tight, it's very in, in, insular and kind of the menace is there and the danger is there. And he's like some sort of 1970s satanic rock god who's just appeared in in the 19 you know in the 1910s seduced the entire russian royal family and and is manipulating everything behind the scenes he is absolutely perfect there are absolutely i'm sure we'll get onto this later but there are characters in this and there are actors in this who are criminally criminally underused but the fact that everyone turns up and is of such a strong and high caliber as an actor means that every performance in this is just fucking brilliant and it's it's just that so when Bruce Evans turns up as Rasputin you know this is someone who a lot of people know is is a villain he manages to make it not a caricature and absolutely convincing at the same time but then so we, we should probably mention the king's man or the king's men and what they are so Ray finds his character the Duke of Oxford <laughs> he puts together this kind of crack team of 
people and they work separate to the government to bring down the villains of the world, I suppose. So they find out about what Rasputin's planning, which in this film is to bring Russia out of the First World War. So Germany won't be fighting on multiple sides, will be able to invade Britain and England specifically so that this Scottish mastermind, the Scottish villain, can get revenge for 700 years of subjugation. Well, it's, a, it's an ode to Scottish independence, isn't it? So I think, I think that's, that's, that's one of the, that's the, that's the other thing that I kind of, I love about it. It's also kind of thrown in at the, at the very end as the reason. And, and for people who, I think for maybe American audiences and audiences that aren't in the UK, might be a bit of a moment where you're like, what? That's just the whole reason, really? Whereas if you're in the UK, especially with everything we've been through in the last few years, you're like, oh yeah, no, I can totally see that happening. That makes that makes complete sense. Yep, I understand that's a motivation for overthrowing the world and plunging us all into a world war. Okay, so he, uh, one of the things that I, I think is fascinating is Ray finds his team is set up because he doesn't want his son to go to war. So it's like, well, come and do these secret spy missions with me because that way you'll feel important and you'll feel like you're doing something, but I won't, I'll be there the whole time and I won't risk you dying. I won't risk any of that, which as we know is something that is a very important part of, of the beat of the film after this. But I think, I think you are absolutely right. Again, this comes back to kind of the criminal underuse of actors. We've got Gemma Martin as, as a Polly. I think I've forgotten her name. I think it's Polly, but who is both his maid slash secretary. And then we've got Jamon Honsu, who I remember first seeing on screen in Gladiator, who is a phenomenal actor, but is very much regulated to background work in this. And I think if, if this franchise or version of the film moves forward, he should be the protagonist of the next film because we this film is very much Rafe Fiennes' struggling with Victorian masculinity. Seeing it from his perspective instead, as with all of the beats that have to happen, especially with the parts of history that change in the Edwardian era. So we get our first black mayor in Battersea in 1913. And yet, you know, Jamon Honsu is, is really stuck there playing valet. That's history that should be, especially then when we got the 1920s and 30s and this huge rise in eugenics and the emergence of what becomes an incredibly dangerous racially oriented ideology. Following his character, if the film progresses could do exactly what this film has done for Rafe Fiennes and middle-aged Victorian men. You know that it, it would be an absolutely amazing thing to do. And also, I, I, one, of my, one of my main issues of, with the film is that um, Gemma Argenton, who I adore, so they've got a woman on the team, which is a bit like they've tacked a woman in, going, hooray, there's a woman here. Okay, this is the whole period of just before World War I and throughout World War I, when the suffragettes were conducting a bombing campaign around the UK and no one's going to mention it, touch on it, draw it to attention at all. Really? That's, that's a moment where I, I kind of felt, yeah, this, this film is a film about men, for men, and the history of men. And that doesn't mean we can't enjoy it and engage with it and be interested in it. But it's specifically white men, you know, that's it. That's the version of our history and our story that's being told here. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and I did wonder what you think about the whole absence of the suffragettes, given your research in the area. So anyway, OK, so they're sent over to Russia to bring down Rasputin. And it kind of culminates in this. We have to call it a darts fight because that's what it is. 
That's what it is. That's the only way to describe it. Well, the reality of trying to kill Rasputin is like one of the most bizarre murder mysteries you've ever read in your life because he refused to die. He went through multiple deaths over the course of about 24, 48 hours with lots of different people trying to do him in in different ways um, to to kind of get rid of him and remove him. So I, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but he ends up poisoned, shot, stabbed and drowned. Yeah, I, I think he's drowned. I was, I was trying to remember whether he was actually drowned or whether he was shot and fell into a river, but he definitely meets water at some point. Yeah, I think it's the final thing. It's, it's the water that's the thing that finally kills him. But he's gone through people's attempts to kill him in this, this very kind of short space of time. And it, it's so well done in the film because obviously the protagonists in, in real life are completely different. So it's it's just it's a, a fight between um, Ra- Ray Fiennes and his team and Rasputin, and every time Ray Fiennes thinks he's won, Rasputin just reemerges back out, you know, out of the water or or from up from the floor, like a, like a terrible terrible supervillain who will just never die and keeps coming back. And I thought that actually was done really well. But we have to we just have to understand the words dance fight because. When I was sitting down to kind of talk about it and speak about it, I thought, you know, the moment you say the words dance fight to someone, then they're going to go think, oh, this is going to be the campus thing I've ever seen in my life. It's going to really take me out of the moment. It's going to be such a moment of high comedy. How could it be interesting or how could it be kind of, how can it fit with the rest of the film? It's absolutely superb because it's not funny. Like it, it well, it, it is partly but it's also so well choreographed. You believe every single one of those hits and kicks, they just happen to be delivered in the style of a Russian dance. I think it's one of the greatest fight scenes I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> He's very graceful as well, isn't he? Very nimble. It did remind me a lot of samurai films because they are essentially dance fights, aren't they? So Rasputin's killed and then the story moves on to the son, Ray Fiennes' son, And he signs up to fight in World War One. And this is where we get to the real meat of the film. The the part that you were talking about before, where we really get a kind of sweeping take of what it must have been like to fight during this horrific war, scrambling over no man's land, bombs going off, gunfire going off left, right and centre. Could you tell us about that and maybe speak on the authenticity of his experiences on screen? I think this is one of the moments where, you know, we it's so interesting looking back at it because obviously we've had that high drama cinematic moment of the dance fight, which is spectacular. And then Ray Fiennes is very kind of relieved. He takes his son back to the UK and he's like, OK, well, that's it. You know, we're done now. And his son has to go. I'm I'm sorry that that isn't enough for me. You know, I've been given a white feather now. I have to sign up. I have to fight for my country. Everyone else is going. I am going too. And we see Ray Fiennes just absolutely crushed by, by this. And his son goes off, signs up because of who his father is. He's protected, believed to be kept safe. And Ray Fiennes is kind of secure in that knowledge that he won't end up on the front lines. But his son doesn't want to do that. So he changes places with a soldier in another regiment and takes his name and ends up in the heart of no man's land uh, in some of the most violent and horrific trench warfare. And I think one of the things that's so brilliant about the film 
is that shift from the high octane dance fight in the palaces of Russia to suddenly being in the trenches. For me, I don't know how you felt about it, but it didn't feel like a disconnect. It was so well done. It 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 kind of it hit its feet so perfectly that I didn't go, oh, I was wait, am I in a different film? I felt completely carried through on the journey. And it was only when this next section happened that the reality of the awfulness of World War One really kinds to sink into this like seep into the corners of the frame. So it, it starts very kind of you know, okay, yeah, we're in the trenches and yes, it's difficult and it's painful and it's awful. Okay, oh, they're gonna go over the top. Oh, and then you get into the reality of bombing and trying to rescue people and the fact that we were just sending men, wave of men after men over to be destroyed by mortar fire, by machine guns. One of the bits that really kind of started to get, make me quite emotional is when Ray finds his son ends up in um, one of the uh, the shells, in one of the, uh, the um, where, where the bombers hit and he's had to take refuge there and he bursts into tears. And we are lucky enough now to understand a little or to be taught to recognise the trauma of war on our soldiers. Of course, in this period, this is the time when the first discussions and investigations into shell shock and into PTSD and into the mental effects of war on our soldiers start to happen, but they certainly didn't exist as something to be acknowledged in society at the time. And I, I think it was a moment where I started to realise, okay, this film is is going to take a very different beat here. It's going to be really honest about what these men went through and the horrors that they had to face. And what happens at the end of this section of the film is so heartbreaking in its reality because I don't think you see it coming. No, no. Because of everything that's gone before, all Hollywood films, there's the expectation there that he is safe. He's safe. He's the, the bright hope. He is the one that's going to continue the Kingsman franchise. That's what we're led to believe. And that's what I believed. What does happen was a complete shock to me. And that's why it punched so hard, I think. He's managed to rescue this, this document and he races back to his own side. And because he has a different name, because he's there under a different name, he's shot by a soldier of his own side, believing that he's a German spy. And we then move to Rafe Fiennes giving the most heartbreaking and distraught eulogy, where he's quoting one of the most famous World War I poems of all time, Dolce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen. And I was absolutely in tears because it is exactly what you said. We are, we, Hollywood tells us that the bright young boy who, who is in terrible danger, but the witty, you know, the, the, the hope for the future will be the thing that survives to the very end. And of course, the reality of World War I is that they didn't. They, so many of them died. And that's where I think the, the history is handled really deftly because it's absolutely true that a young man like him would have been killed. And, you know, Matthew Vaughan didn't make a dramatic choice there to give us a hero. He gave us the truth. And I think that's what makes the film so powerful in, in that moment. And then, obviously, you know, Dolce de Coromest is, is absolutely heartbreaking to hear. And, and this is where you think about what's happening at the moment. I mean, just for people listening, we're recording this, I think, probably four or five days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, 
who knows what what the situation will be by the time this comes out um but everything seems to be indicating that it's escalating rather than de-escalating and that's what gives this well this conversation a slightly different slant as you said at the beginning i mean you you must have stories like this but i i just remember my granddad telling me about his father who fought in the second world war and you know great grandfathers and um, all the rest of it how they they didn't they they didn't speak about their experiences they stayed silent when asked questions about what had happened and i don't think that's an unusual anecdote i think that's pretty widespread because they had this this guilt when they returned like how do you how do you kind of reacclimatize to quote unquote a normal situation when you've experienced the trauma and brutality of war when you've seen your friends killed when you've killed yourself how how can you even begin to readjust after that i th- i think i think what's happening right now is we're seeing very similar themes to the issues that our society had watching war from afar in world war 1 already the the coverage of zelensky who is an incredible leader is very much starting to talk about news articles are starting to come out sort of talking about how this is the figure of manhood and you know it's masculine and it it's a leader and it's it's not emotional and it's not to do with kind of the airy fairy effeminacy that the west has been propagating and on all of this there's exactly the same conversations that were happening surrounding masculinity and men in world war 1 in any war really of this this idea that that manliness and manhood can only be seen in a certain way as if you're talking about war and if you're talking about leadership and i think one of the things the film does really well is showing that it doesn't matter what people at home claim makes a real man or makes a real leader the reality of people who make those hor- horrific decisions to be soldiers to fight is one that is incredibly traumatic and and really difficult to deal with for the the situations that they find themselves in are unlike any situation any normal human being would find themselves in and so i think i think our films and our dramas whatever period they're set in have a huge responsibility to teach us the reality of the past and the actions of those within it so that we don't idealize anything so that we see things clearly and so that we can understand the sacrifices people make far better than if we just pretend they're all pantomime. Thank you, Fern. It's been a pleasure. The conflict in Ukraine is ongoing. History for Ukraine was set up by Natalie Pithers to fundraise aid for those caught up in the devastating consequences of the Russian invasion. You can find details at www.historyforukraine.com. Dot co.